Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the learning stories and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Laura Klein, one of the most well-known personalities in the worlds of product and UX. Drawing on her 20 plus years in the West Coast technology scene, as the principal of Users Know, Laura helps companies to build better products through world-class advisory training and coaching in product management, user research, and UX design. She has a particular skill and passion for helping startups as they search for product market fit. In fact, it was largely her time at Imview, a company founded by the author of the lean startup, Eric Ries, that inspired her to condense what she'd learnt into a book that shows startups how to use UX to get to fit faster. It's called UX for Lean Startups, and it's been widely praised for its witty, punchy practicality. If you've read it, it's easy to see why it's fast become a classic. It's just so very helpful. Laura is also the author of Build Better Products, an excellent field guide for product people who want to unlock their team's potential to make smarter and more successful design decisions, especially those working in larger and more established businesses. Both of her books have had a profound impact on the way that product people all over the world go about creating value for users and their organizations. Laura has spoken at many conferences and events, including the Lean Startup Conference and Mind the Product. She's the co-host of What is Wrong with UX with Kate Rutter, a podcast where, and I'm quoting now, two old ladies yell at each other about how to make products suck slightly less. While she might describe herself as an angry old lady, I prefer wise provocateur, and it's my pleasure to be speaking with her on Brave UX today. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I should have you write all of my bios. I should, I, I tell you, that was awesome. Thanks. It's great having you here today. And you know, one of the things that really stood out to me when I was preparing for today's conversation was looking at your bio and your work history. And you've done a lot of things in your career. You know, you've been a researcher, an engineer, a UX designer, and a product manager, as well as a consultant. And it got me wondering, you know, do you get bored easily? Yes. I was just going to, that's my typical line is that I just get bored easily. And it, it, I, I do. And also with the exception of engineering on that list, and I, to be very clear, I was always a front end engineer and I was never really that good at it. Um, I was, I, I will say that the UX design, the product, the strategy, all of that stuff, when you have done it for long enough and you kind of get to the high enough levels it's really similar. Like we think about the same things. We are all trying to just find the right product to build for the users and for the company and, you know, hopefully for the world. And those questions become very similar to one another. And I honestly have trouble with folks who split them up too much and say, oh no, I only care about this one little area of things. Like, okay, okay but we all need to figure all of this stuff out together. So <laughs> we're all kind of asking really similar questions at a, at a certain point. And I mean, obviously people specialize in, you know, one of those areas and that's fantastic and we need those folks, but we all also need to understand what all of those different specialties do and how they contribute to making good products. And so, yeah, I haven't found them that different when you really get into the decisions that you're making. Yeah, and I picked that up from the 
forwards and the openings of of your books also like you, you're very clear in there that while you know ux for lean startups might suggest that it's just for uxs it's really not it was a book for entrepreneurs or anyone that was interested in getting to product market fit faster and and it's interesting also to look at other um, leaders in the field like say for example marty kagan in his book um, inspired um, he also includes you know techniques there for understanding um, users as a core part of being a product manager so really these lines aren't as clearly drawn as they would appear to be in, in some organizations yeah, if you're a product person and you're not interviewing users and understanding users and finding ways to get in touch with, with users, I think you're a very poor product person. And if you're a designer and you don't understand how your company makes money um, and you don't understand things like who's using the product and how they're using it, I think that you're going to be much less effective at most types of actual user experience design, you know, if you're doing that stuff. And I, you know, I think that if you're if you're making any kind of strategy decisions and you don't care about who your users are, you're going to make terrible, or, or you don't understand what the engineering implications of things are, you're going to be garbage at it. So we all, it's not that we all have to be perfect at it. It's not that we all have to know everything. I'm not, this is not going to turn into a designer's must code because I think that's nonsense, but I think we need to understand each other better. And I think that there's more overlap than people sometimes believe there is. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting and, and maybe this is a bit of a can of worms to open I suppose it depends on on who you speak with but you mentioned there about um, it might be ridiculous to expect designers to code um, yet there seems to be an expectation out there for uh, everybody else in the product team outside of the user researcher to do user research you know why does it go go that way and not the other way uh, I think that there is a very strong distinction between do user research and find ways to understand your user. Those are two slightly different things. The best user researchers that I know are extremely experienced in lots and lots and lots of different specialized methodologies for really understanding different things, either qualitative or quantitative, and sometimes both, and how to put those together, and dev devising studies, and they're very well informed about all kinds of things, and they're also very good at helping other people get the information that they need. So I, one of the reasons why we often say, like, you know, you need to be out talking to users is that I think that just waiting on that report from a user researcher is not a great strategy having an expert come in and help you figure out how to answer the questions that you need answered and helping you set up a you know an, an ethical and you know well-designed study that will actually answer the questions that you want answered and helping you to kind of refine that like yeah you should absolutely do that and being there and even learning to moderate i mean it's not I think a lot of people could do that. Like, th so there's, there's, there's a, there's a range of things. I think one of the reasons that people often say like, yeah, product managers need to be out there, you know, doing it themselves is, I mean, frankly, we have a shortage of great user researchers and, um, often if you do bring them in, then there is the tendency to just get the, you know, to turn over the whole thing to them and then have them turn over the, you know, the slide deck, which then everybody ignores. And that's just not a good strategy, <laughs> right? I would actually rather have people doing their own bad research than that. But what I really want is, you know, get experts in to help you figure out how to do the right thing 
and then have them help you do it and so that everybody on the team learns. I like engineers watching real user research. I don't necessarily want them planning the study unless that's a thing they're an expert in too, but I sure want them watching, you know, actual people. I want them hearing directly from the user what they're doing to them. <laughs> I mean, what are we inflicting on people? <laughs> let's take a look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let's get real. Let's get it in front mm -hmm. of some real people. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. really important part of the product process and opening up those opportunities for the rest of the product team is important too. You spoke uh, just a second ago about the, um, the reason why we uh, have this push for people other than a, a specific user researcher to get involved in that research is, is because of a lack of supply of qualified researchers and that we do need we do need this work um, is that a um, is that a result of people wake awakening to you know the things that you and, and some of your contemporaries have been going on about for quite a long time about the value of involving the user in the product design process or something else i mean i want to take total credit for it um i think that's probably i'm going to say that's slightly unrealistic okay no it's wildly unrealistic obviously but i will say this I, in the 20 or so years that i have been doing some form of user experience design and i have been going out and talking to teams and companies sometimes as a consultant sometimes in-house um, i will say that where i am in silicon valley and the kinds of teams that I talk to, which tend to be more technical, I get much less pushback now than I did 10 years ago, or especially 15 years ago, about we need to talk to users. I remember in the early aughts when you'd go out and talk to people and you always had to start with like, this is what user research is, and this is why we're gonna do it before we start drawing <laughs> pictures for you. Um, and they're like, what? And, <laughs> I mean, not 100% of the time, and some of the companies were like, yeah, we know, that's why we hired you. Um, but there was more of that, and now there is less of that, and I'm not gonna say that there is none of that, because there absolutely is some of that, and I run into it every single time I'm at I give a talk to any user researchers and the first question that gets asked is, hey, how do I get people to take me seriously and actually listen to the things that I say? And I, it just makes me super sad because I know that user researchers, we, we, we may have gotten to the point where now user researchers get hired and then ignored, uh, whereas before they just, <laughs> they didn't know the need for them and it was just engineers building stuff. And I mean, this is all in the, you know, nineties and early aughts, um, like I said, so. It's getting better, I think. Um, I think people understand the need for user research. I think there are obviously wonderful practitioners out there who are doing it, who get it. There are obviously lots of great product people who get the need for it and who can actually do it themselves or who know when to bring in an expert. And I think that's not the majority of people yet. I don't know if it will ever be the majority of people. Why do we have, why do we ignore this? I have my own hypotheses about that. Um, it is, um, if especially in the startup world, many people approach things, what I call idea first, where I have an idea, I have a great idea, it's going to be, you know, jobs for pets, and um, that's the thing that they want to build, and they're going to, I actually own the um, domain name jobsforpets.com, um, because... <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Because um, it's a great idea, right? We're going to get jobs for pets. And then you know, I've got this idea. And then if I've got some, you know, person coming in and going, well, you know, 
pets, pets make terrible accountants, then I mean, I don't maybe want to hear that because I want to build the thing that I want to build. And we get a lot of that. And then we get a lot of um, founders sort of being idolized for having that brilliant vision up front and never swerving from it and user research just gets in the way. So there's a lot of that. And then there's a lot of, you know, just we don't really know how to incorporate them into the product development process and you know a lot of people have actually had bad experience trying to do user research but they've well but I went out and I asked people what they wanted and they said they wanted jobs for pets and then I built it and then nobody used it and all the user researchers who are listening to this just got extremely angry because they're like it's not about just asking people what they want and so anyway all of those ideas all of those reasons all of the reasons for we don't have enough and the ones that we do we don't listen to enough um, and there is this push to like, well, you should do your own user research. And I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, that's better than not. <laughs> it's better mm -hmm. than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, it sounds like you feel that things are trending in the right direction, but there's still a bit of a way to go. And part of that you'd also touched on earlier, which was the time it takes and the fact that the reports, and we, we all laugh about this, but the reports don't get read. And, and to, to me, that seems like, you know, we have quite clear um, understanding of the parameters around the product delivery cadence. You know, there's ceremonies, there's rituals, there's uh, the two week sprints, you know, there's release the release cycle that you're going to production with, whatever it may be, daily, monthly, weekly, yearly. Um, but when it comes to discovery, it's almost like that part has, has somewhat forgotten. There's not as enough structure around it to, to, to make it usable, make the research usable and integrate well with delivery. What have you observed in, in your experience working and consulting with these organizations? The funny thing is that I'm currently writing a course uh, on designing and researching for agile teams. And so I've done a tremendous amount of research about this just recently. Um, and also, I, uh, if, you haven't, if, you're, if you're interested in sort of how some research can fit in better to agile teams, you know, everything you mentioned there was, you know, a, a symptom of agile, <laughs> at least agile-ish. Uh, you should look at the work of Teresa Torres, who talks about continuous discovery, and that's all really good. And um, Cindy Alvarez writes a, um, a lot about, well, she doesn't write as much anymore, but she did, she wrote a great book on um, customer development and sort of like that, how to figure out product market fit and, and how you use user research and customer interactions to do that sort of thing. Um, so there are a lot of people who actually are thinking about this and talking about this. So I don't want to say like, you know, I, I have all the answers. I don't. Uh, but what I will say is that most people, the problem is that most people who are doing things like sprints and scrums and retros and the, the whole thing are only doing it for their engineers. They are, or if they're doing it and including their designers and, and researchers, they're adding like a sprint zero because, you know, of course, every research and design project can be time boxed to two weeks, right? Like that. <laughs> I mean, there's no concept that maybe a diary study might go a little bit longer than that or that might be shorter than that or that, no, it's exactly two weeks. That's what it is. That's what I heard that we need to time and we'll know that ahead of time. Okay. All of that is absolutely, absolutely nonsense. And if you cut that into a clip and just show that we will have words, um, but this is, it's an, it's I a may very really, well do that. Mm, <laughs> no, <laughs> lockdown won't last forever. <laughs> it's really, it's really I promise, important. Okay, I promise I won't. It's really, it's really important to understand that you need to approach discovery, which is, which it's a funny word that covers a lot of different topics, right? I mean, it's discovery for like 
is this the right product? You know, there's discovery for, you know, there's, there's usability stuff there. There's what should I build next? There's, is this the right thing to build next? There's the, is this the right way to build it? There's all of these different parts of user research. And we've all kind of shoved them into this concept of discovery because that's what it was called in Waterfall and we did it all up front for a brand new feature, or sorry, for a brand new version of the product, right? Like, oh, we're gonna redo the whole product, so we're gonna go and we're gonna do six weeks of discovery and that's how that project's gonna be run and everything has fallen out from there and that's not how you work on an Agile team. On an Agile team, you need to be doing continuous discovery where you're constantly talking to people and constantly running experiments and constantly getting feedback on things and you're making it very easy to get the quick feed. Like most, most people don't work on products from scratch. Most of us work on existing products and just improve them incrementally all the time. And that is a very different kind of research and discovery in many cases, especially on a specific feature than we're building a whole new thing and it's gonna be wildly innovative and completely different and it's completely from scratch. And so you approach those very differently. And so we, what we need to do is we need to get out of this like discovery period and figure out ways to integrate research constantly into the design and development process. And that might mean involving engineers earlier. It might mean involving engineers in things like figuring out the metrics for things. And, you know, it might involve things like designing little pieces of things and experimenting with them and getting them in front of people and then getting feedback and then building something else. Or it might involve, you know, us all taking a little time and really doing some in-depth research with people to understand their needs because why would we have the engineers working on building something if we don't know it's the right thing? So these are all these are all different modes and we call them all user research or discovery or whatever and that's just we have to stop. We don't have to. We can keep doing it, but I I think it's not helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose what it seems to me that it get, it's all getting at is it's sort of a search for certainty that people want to know that they're going to have an output at the end of whatever the period is that you've allocated for the work, regardless of whether or not that's realistic to expect. But it, it also seems that it comes back down to the product team understanding what are the, the right questions to be asking and then how do you go about answering them so you can get some reality into the situation um, in terms of timing. And they're very different, I think you touched on this earlier, very different types of research. I mean, running a usability test uh, on, a, on an existing product or on a potential new feature is very different to, like you mentioned, going and doing a, a, a diary study um, and, you know, and really searching for a new problem to solve. Those are yeah. wildly different skills. And people, yeah. people do a lot of, and I, I mean, I, I, I used to do this a million years ago and I kind of hate that I used to do it. And, but a lot of people do, you know, like prototype testing and then try to extrapolate from that, whether somebody will use the product. And that's not what prototype testing does. Prototype test will not tell you whether somebody will use the product. The prototype test will generally speaking, tell you if somebody could use the product in the way that you have asked them to try to use the product in the prototype test. <laughs> That's it. Now, there, yeah, there are other definitions. It's an abstraction. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, and there there are other definitions of prototype that um, I don't want to get into, but like, but I'm talking about sort of the the traditional like I'm going to show you a you know a collection of screens that you're going to click or swipe through, and do, you know I'm like okay, great, yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's a great usability test, and I'll absolutely tell people tell you if people can do the thing that you are asking them to do in the test, and it will tell you literally nothing else. Um, other than like maybe, oh, mm-hmm. this is wildly confusing or I don't even understand what I'm supposed to do. But it won't tell you mm-hmm. that they're going to do it. So that's a really important thing to understand. You need a different type of experimentation and mm-hmm. interview technique and study setup to do that kind of thing. And people don't always get that. And they don't like mm-hmm. doing it because it's so much easier. It's mm-hmm. more fun to just build a prototype and then show it to people. And then everybody goes, ooh, look, it's so pretty. And then they build the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about this um, in one of your talks that I was researching for our, for our conversation today. I think uh, one of the techniques that you spoke at length about was uh, fake door is one way that mm-hmm. you can test demand for, for, a, for a feature um, before you actually commit resources to prototyping that out. You know, there are different techniques, I suppose, outside of the norm of what people think of as user research to understand, um, you know, usability, but also um, uh, desirability of whatever it is that you're creating. Yeah, I prefer concierge. I mean, these these days I prefer concierge tests, just so you know. Like the fake door only works if you have a product and it's got a front end and you've got enough traffic. I think concierge works really well for that as well. And it works with a much smaller group of people and you're less likely to irritate people and you actually get more detail. But um, it's a it's also harder. So <laughs> for people that are listening that don't know what a concierge test is, could, could you just give us a bit of a description of how that is, how that works, what it is? Sure thing. Yeah. You have to do stuff by hand. Um, that's it. That's the whole thing. Um, you offer a service. And you can offer it through um, uh, whatever, you know, you can offer it through whatever medium you want to offer it through. But, you know, if it's, we're going to get people jobs or we're going to get jobs, we're going to, let's just use jobs for pets. That's my favorite one. Um, I have a zillion examples for that. Um, We're going to get jobs for pets, right? And we have this new system where we're going to set up pet profiles so that people can browse pet profiles and find the right, you know, border collie to herd their sheep. Um, and it's actually, once you start using this analogy, it is remarkable how many people have pets that actually have jobs. Um, so we're going to do this, right? And so the first step isn't necessarily to like set it all up and automate it and have this great onboarding system so that border collies can come in and register themselves, right? That's probably not the first step. The first step is to see if you can actually find people who want to hire border collies and find people who want to rent out their border collies and the border collies have that skill and see if you can put them together yourself like a border collie matchmaker and that's if you can do that and if there's a lot of demand for that then you can start to automate it and if there isn't then putting a website up is probably not going to create a lot of demand for that yeah 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 it's such a it's such a wise way to approach things. And I believe Airbnb was one of the case studies uh, for doing that, right? They were mm-hmm. actually going around and taking photos of their guests' uh, um, yeah. houses because they realized that the quality of the photos that the guests were posting, posting were terrible and that they were actually con- increasing conversion by going out and putting up better photos themselves. So Their hypothesis was that. Like that was, they were like, oh, these are terrible photos. We believe to be true that if we had better photos – we would have better conversion. Now, there are a bunch of things that you have to validate. You have to say, oh, is that, A, is that true? And B, is that cost effective? Um, And C, is that a thing that we can get 
people to do with more guidance or is that a thing that we have to do for them or is that a service that we could offer them and so there's a whole bunch of sort of steps there and the, like yeah the first step that they were like we're like can we just come take better pictures of your house <laughs> is that is that okay and then we're just gonna see if you rent it more and then they did and so then that was a service they offered anyone that looks at your body of work you know whether it's your podcast or your posts or your books that you've written and i mentioned this in your introduction you have a real passion and also a skill for helping startups to solve these uh, these kind of early stage um, questions or problems that they're facing with the least possible wastage you know what what has it been um in your career that has made that such a focus or one of the focuses of your energy you know you've put a lot of energy into helping people solve this problem what is it about this problem that's a great question um i'll be honest i think we screwed a bunch of stuff up in the 90s um, especially that whole lack of a business model thing um that was that was a real problem that we kind of that was a corner we painted ourselves into didn't mean to um sorry about that but uh, i i i worked with startups then and i sort of saw people trying to struggle to figure the stuff out. And the thing that the thing that made me a little sad, I will say this, is that over about the 20, 25 years, whatever it is, I don't know, 8 million decades um, that I've been doing this, I saw a lot of people make the same mistakes over and over and over. I mean, not necessarily the same ones we were making in the 90s, although some of those, some of those are coming back in style. Um, none of this social media stuff didn't happen on bulletin boards. Um, so just letting people know. So a lot of this stuff, they're just making the same mistakes. And it always kind of made me sad because I'm like, I'd like people to make new and more interesting mistakes. And so I try to help them, you know, get over the, the obvious stuff and not just build a bunch of crap that nobody uses and nobody wants because it's just such a waste of time and and you know intelligence and and we could be you know we could have flying cars i don't actually want flying cars but you know i want i don't know renewable power i want better batteries i don't know somebody build me some important stuff <laughs> And I wonder from your time working at Inview with Eric Reese, you know, it seemed to me that that was a bit of a pivotal point uh, in your thinking or at least your desire shortly thereafter to express that thinking and help solve this problem or these repeatable problems for people with, with the book. You know, what was it about that time uh, working with Eric at Inview um, that shaped your thinking on UX and product? That's when I started to use metrics. So uh, I had been an engineer, like I said, front end, not very good back in the 90s. And then um, I had switched to UX design and I'd always done some research and I did more research and all that stuff. So I did that in the early 2000s and I had done that for a while and got a really good grounding um, from the place I was working in, really solid, what we called interaction design, right? But user research, you know, real grounding in user research and we all did the user research ourselves. So doing the user research, doing the interaction design, doing the prototyping, doing the iteration, understanding users, interviewing stakeholders, interview, like the whole process, right? The actual human computer, you know, the, the, the whole um, user-centered design process. And I loved it and it was fantastic. And we built a lot of cool stuff. And then I got to InView 
because I wanted to do some programming again, because I started to miss it for some reason that I honestly cannot even imagine why that was, but it was, and I kind of missed programming, and I wanted to do a little bit of both, and at Inview, I got to kind of do both. I got to do the, well, all three. I got to do research and design, and also I got to ship code, which was fun, and I, they had this really strong culture of testing and experimenting and you know I got to learn about A-B testing and multivariate testing and looking at metrics and understanding how you know experiments work and how they don't work and I got to see a lot of you know we screwed a lot of things up and we looked at you know things like the conversion funnel and and why doing this thing here makes this conversion funnel better and why what makes it worse and you know, coming up with better hypotheses about this and better ways to test those hypotheses. And I actually got to do that with a big enough sample size. And I was, and it changed the way that I think about design because I always kind of had approached design. Like, you know, if I, if we just, if we understand the user's problem, then we can come up with a great solution. And then as long as they can use it, it'll work. And what we saw was that we don't always come up with the right solution the first time, and sometimes there are little pieces of it that are better or worse than others, and sometimes we can tweak something. I mean, and that was the other thing, is that I really got into the, this idea that there really were things that you could tweak that would make the experience just much, much, much better for users, and sometimes the best things we could do were the smallest things, and other times we actually had to dig in and understand, you know, what's this giant thing that we have to do, and let's break it down into pieces, and let's get it out to people. And uh, it, it just wasn't a way of designing that I had done before. And um, it was great. I, I, I strongly recommend it to anybody who still wants to just, you know, design and then not worry about it. I also got to work directly with a lot of really unbelievably smart, fantastic engineers. Do not tell them I said that. They will ne I will never live that down. Um, I'm still really good friends with a bunch of them, though. Um, I'm actually married to one of them, um, and uh, especially don't tell him. But uh, yeah, it's there. I got to work directly with these unbelievably smart engineers who could help think through the different experiments, and they cared really deeply about the users. And a lot of them went and talked to users themselves, and. It was just such a good experience working sort of much more closely with the engineering department and not looking at, you know, deliverables that I chuck over the wall to people, um, you know, in a deck that I know they're going to ignore half of, which, you know, the, the, I designed a lot of really nice stuff, some of which never made it out into the world, and that made me sad. Yeah, that's always a deflating experience. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the culture that when you arrived at Inview, it was really supportive of getting design in front of the user. You've even mentioned there that engineers really cared about the users, went and, and spoke with users, were really involved in that process. And that really gets me wondering, you know, what is it outside of the practicalities that I feel like our community has quite a good handle on, or at least they have some great resources like the books that you and others have written as to how we should be approaching uh, the process of discovery and delivery. But what are the cultural or structural or potentially both elements that need to be in place to really enable that to deliver value for the organization? I think on the on the engineering side of it specifically, uh, you have to have a culture where, 
I'm going to use I'm going to use like the most overused jargon right now. Um, we're we're looking at outcomes over outputs. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that, but it's actually a really good. It's a it's a great way of expressing it. Um, where engineers are actually held to account. I don't want to say held to account because I don't want to blame people for it, but where they're they care about the thing that they're making, and more specifically that they care about the way that the person on you know the other end how they experience it they the engineers have to care and they have to be not punished for caring uh there are lots of teams where engineers are punished for doing anything other than just crossing tickets off the list and if all you're doing is get it trying to trying to tear through jira tickets as fast as you possibly can it, you can't say, I need to take the time to really understand this user story. I need to really understand the user. Um, I, I think this is maybe the wrong way to go. Uh, you need to, you know, engineers are generally speaking, bright people who are good at problem solving. Um, some of them are great with people. I'm not going to like stereotype every, all of them as being, you know, hermits. They're not all like me. Um, some of them are actually good with people. Um, so, I'm, you know, but, and some of them aren't and that's fine too. And, but like overall their job is often, you know, problem solving. And so exposing them to the actual problem that they are solving <laughs> often has wonderful results for the outcome and they can often help figure out what is the right way to solve this for that person and but they have to be exposed to those people they can't they can't just have those people in their head and because then they'll just start you know building you know if it's if it's all just tickets then it's all just abstract and they don't know what it means on the other end and they can't make decisions about oh if i if I make this decision, it'll be a better experience for the user. And if I don't, it'll be a bit, I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to make decisions based on what's easier for them. Cause I mean, who, whom amongst us wouldn't, <laughs> if all we care about is pulling tickets off. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's that real delivery, hard nose delivery culture. And I suppose it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, we need to lift people out of the abstract understanding of the user and actually make that a bit more tangible and real for them. So if you're in a product team or a, a product organization, or even an organization that also builds products, you know, maybe one of the things that you can consider if you're listening to this is actually try and find ways to expose or involve your uh, engineering team and the wider team, including your stakeholders in, in, in this process of putting the work in front of users and seeing what happens. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable to me how few people know how the results of their actions affect the end user. Whether that's engineers or marketing people or, I mean, salespeople do because they're actually out talking to people, but, um, you know, designers, product people, like they don't, they don't see the end result. And if you don't have that end result, then you don't have the feedback of, oh, that decision I made was a good one. So you, or that decision I made was a nightmare. <laughs> and so if you don't have that, then you can't make better decisions in the future. Right. If you just put things out and you're like, yeah, no, it went great. And I have, I believe that to be true because I was judged on whether it shipped, not on whether it 
made someone happy, right? Mm. Yeah, it's 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 tricky though as well. I mean, I was um, I was running a, a usability test the other week, and in the debrief in between one of the sessions, one of the stakeholders literally said there were no issues with this form. Um, and it's almost like, well, there definitely were. Uh, it's <laughs> were, almost were like there was such a strong the belief. Same, yeah, were you watching the same sessions yeah. that I was? <laughs> it was like being in parallel universes. You know, I kid you, yeah. I kid you not. Um, yeah. like, it was quite, it was quite eye-opening. But it was also a good reminder, I think, that there are. You can still do the doing and the practices, and you can open the process up, and you definitely should be doing that and, and putting things in front of users and involving stakeholders. But in some cases, you're going to have a, a bit of a longer and harder challenge on your hands because you really do have to. Um, and I don't want to use the word convince because it's very difficult to convince people to believe things that they don't already believe. But you do have to find another way sometimes of um, of shifting those mindsets where, no, everything's fine. We don't really need to be doing this. No problem to see here. Let's just, you know, use quant methods or, or do something, you know, do something on production and see how it goes instead of doing this kind of work. If quant methods would convince them, I'm more than happy to use quant methods. That's that's mm. That's part of it is that... We do sometimes need to be a little bit flexible. And one of the one of my favorite mm. questions when somebody's like, "Well, this this is absolutely how things are, and this is how I believe they will be." One of my favorite questions is, "Well, what what evidence would you have to see to make you change that belief?" Mm. Right? What I love it. What would yep. I have to show you to make you think that maybe that wasn't the correct thing? And if you can get that in writing, so here's the problem: um, there are people who just won't change their minds. I, I mean, and this is a thing that I have run into. And like I said, I'm not terribly good with people. I'm very bad at convincing people of things, um, which seems like a terrible <laughs> trait for somebody who's in consulting. But um, I just pick my <laughs> clients very well. I pick the ones who want to change. <laughs> but there are absolutely There's something in there, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it abs there absolutely is, right? Like you can sometimes run into people, and I don't think there are a lot of them or a big percentage of people, but there are absolutely people who you can do you can show them the actual usability test and you they can watch the whole thing and you don't understand if they were watching the same thing that you were because that person was crying and they're like no all good looked good everything worked the way it wanted to do you know, like oh are they supposed to be weeping on the ground okay i didn't realize that that was one of the op the one of the things that we were going for um, <laughs> I actually saw somebody weep in a usability test. It was very uncomfortable. No, it was terrible. Um, so, mm, not my product. I did not build it. Um, but uh, so that's 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 a real issue. It's not. I think it's not as common as as you'd think. Those those times really stick out for me. But way more often, what I've run into is people starting to do this and saying, wow, we learned so much, even from just this one thing. Do they always learn exactly the right thing? No, but I mean, you know, they keep doing it and they keep trying and they keep getting better. And Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, no one starts out as an expert. You've, you've actually got to put the time in. When we're talking about these people that refuse to accept what is... I won't, reality? Maybe I'll be as bold to say the, the objective truth, yes, reality that if they're unwilling to, then you really do need to move on and find other people that you might be able to get some support from. And this comes back to what I've observed as a unwillingness, sometimes a resistance, sometimes a straight out um, denial to 
um, be wrong that whether it's our education system or whether it's the way that we incentivize people in organizations or, or a combination of many things, um, people don't like to be wrong. It's actually, it takes a very brave person to uh, admit that they may not be right about something. And this to me has been one of the central focuses of your work, which is the validation of assumptions. I wanted to talk to you about this because, um, you, you know, the way in which people express their assumptions is quite important to the way in which they interrogate them and therefore they uh, interpret their results. You know, how do you go about helping teams to, to frame the assumptions and then go about validating them or invalidating them? My goal is helping people understand and predict what, what little invisible things they're just assuming to be true and helping them figure out if they're right or wrong because, and also helping them figure out if they're wrong about it, what's going to happen? Because those are the two really important things. You don't need to validate or invalidate every single assumption. Some of your assumptions might be wrong. That might be fine, right? You, you can make, we make all sorts, we have, we have to make certain assumptions all the time. And some of them are going to be incorrect. And for most of us, life will go on and you know it won't be a major thing so the trick is though to figure out which ones are likely to be very 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 bad if they happen um, it's not that hard to come up with experiments to validate or invalidate some of the assumptions some of them are literally impossible <laughs> i found and you actually have to like build a fairly big thing right there are certain assumptions that we make that are very easily validatable with some simple user research. You know, I believe it to be true that, you know, all of my users will have internet access all the time when they are using this product. Well, that's actually pretty easy. It turns out to validate or invalidate. Um, you just have to figure out what the context of use is likely to be and then go and sort of follow people around and understand, you know, what their life is actually like. And you can pretty quickly start to see like, oh, yes, that's true, except when they're on the subway or yes, that's true, except when there's a power outage. And those might be things where you're like, that's actually fine. This is not a thing that is meant to be used on the subway. So this is meant to be used, you know, in secure government facilities. So, you know, we have a slightly different risk assessment about that particular assumption. Other ones are much, much harder. The, like, the, like I said, the one like the will they use this thing in the way I predict, that's a tough one to actually validate or invalidate. All you can really do is de-risk that, right? You can, you can mitigate that risk, but I don't think you ever really know until it's out there in the world because there are so many things that affect it. There's marketing, there's sales, there's the environment into which you launch it. I mean, a thing that might've been true six months ago might no longer be true. I mean, I think that the thing that we learned from 2020 <laughs> Well, we learned a lot of things, but one of the things that we learned was never assume anything, right? I mean, just everything could change all of a sudden and we just got to roll with it. So mm. sometimes, you know, you, the, the worst case does happen and you there was something that you didn't plan for, but maybe you plan for it next time. I think for me, the most important part of all of this, uh, because you're right, it is it is very hard to convince people that they're wrong about some of these assumptions because 
Nobody likes to be wrong. It's even hard to get people to admit that they were wrong, even when it was just completely obvious, so, which is why I, I like the <laughs> hypothesis tracker, um, which I have in my book, Build Better Products, where you actually write mm-hmm. down. It's not that complicated. It's a spreadsheet. You know, you actually write down your prediction and write down what you expect to happen and by when, and then you have to go back and check it. And then I also like to write down things like, why did I believe that thing? That's actually a really important thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think... X is going to happen by Y date and here's what I believe and here's all the research that went into helping determine that. And then what I can do is I can go back and go, oh, that was very, very wrong. And what I've noticed about all of my very, very wrong predictions is that they all came from the same source of research, which was pulled out of my butt or whatever it was. Um, (laughs) You know, it was absolutely no research whatsoever. Uh, So that's, that's a really important thing to have written down. It also um, forces you to confront the fact that that's actually what you believed previously and you don't believe it anymore because it's real easy to kind of retcon what you believed in the past. Um, The other really important thing is uh, postmortems on failures. So when the thing that you believe to be true, you know, like your, you know, stakeholder who was like, everything's fine. Okay, great. So... (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. When you ship the product and it inevitably fails for all of the reasons that you pointed out that it was going to, um, having a postmortem, a blameless postmortem, unfortunately in that case, um, a blameless postmortem <laughs> that says, why didn't we see the things we should have seen? Why didn't we do the things that we needed to do to mitigate that risk? And um, it's not, you know, well, it's Bob's fault because he just didn't see reality. It's, you know, what... What could the system have done better to to catch that problem besides fire Bob, which might also mm. be necessary? I don't yeah, know. it's that discipline to actually take the time to reflect on what the outcome has been, whether it's positive or negative. I mean, we can't mm-hmm. just assume, I think 2020, you touched on this, you can't assume that every year is going to be better than the one before. You, oh. you do have to roll with <laughs> the punches and you do have to look back. You definitely yeah. have to look back. You know, what you know, what this... could I have done differently? What could what could we collectively have done differently to have made this less of a yeah. shit show? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. You know, you know the identification and the prioritization of these assumptions is this really? And this is a closed question, so this isn't a user research interview. But is this the heart of an effective re- user research program? Uh... Is actually knowing what your assumptions are and then knowing which order you're going to investigate them. No, I don't know. I, I think it's. I think it's. Um, I wouldn't call it necessarily the heart of user research. I would call it sort of the heart of making any kind of product decision, um, and realizing that everything is an assumption, and that we should just be writing down our predictions and under you know trying to get better at making predictions, and if we continue to be bad at them, figuring out ways we could be better probably through user research. And so I think I think finding the right questions to ask more. Ge- I'm going to be more general and vague. Finding the right questions to ask is a huge part of good user research, because once you have the right questions to ask, I think finding the right methodology to answer that is easier. It's not easy. You still need experts, but it's easier. But finding like what is what is the thing i want to know and why do i want to know it and how would my behavior change if i had an answer to this because if the answer is it wouldn't then why bother 
Yeah. And also, if it doesn't add value to the business and the users, why would you bother trying to investigate it? Yeah. I mean, if you're just doing it for your own, you know, voyeurism, I don't know. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> but... Um... Yeah, we're not we're not in the business because we just love learning about people. Although some people do, that's fine. Um, no, it's what, how, how am I going to behave differently, and why do I think that that way would be better? You know, what decision am I trying to make that this will help me make it? That's hard. Those are those are hard questions to answer. I don't I don't think anybody gets them right all the time. I mean, thinking about the the teams that you've consulted to and the organizations that you've worked in as well, maybe as an employee, uh, what do the senior business stakeholders outside of the immediate product team or even the product organization, what do they really need to know about their product teams that's going to help them to create better products? Um, details matter for strategy. Uh, you can't, strategy is not this, and this bothers me a lot. I've worked with a lot of teams that are like, think that strategy is saying things like add AI to it. Um, and I, I won't work on teams like that anymore because it's just wildly frustrating. Um, I need they they need to be giving product teams metrics to hit and reasonable ones, and they need to set it up in such a way that the teams have the autonomy and the ability and the personnel do those things and they need to understand that strategy is about saying we need to improve this KPI or you know we we need to improve this KPI and it's not we need to add AI to it and if it is we need to add AI to it I need to know what the hell that means to you and why you would want to do it. Yes it sounds like you, you want them to articulate the outcome but there's also some degree of detail needed and this is the fine line I mean I'm not sure what the answer is here, I mean, this is why I'm asking you the questions and I'm not the expert in this, but, you know, how do you, or is there a role in between um, the articulation of that outcome and then the translation into what, what is actually tangible for a product team to put into practice? It's really hard. I don't, I, I actually can't tell you how to get a strategy person to do that. I think most people aren't strategy people, um, frankly. And I think that a lot of people have, I think a lot of people have MBAs and, that's different. Um, some of the people with MBAs are good strategy people. I don't know that there's even a correlation there. Um, some of the people who are engineers are great strategy people. I, you know, I think that's why you end up with like, I, I hate to pull this, like there's one Steve Jobs and a lot of people who aren't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I think it's really, really hard. And I hate sort of holding him up as the paragon because I mean, he, wasn't great to work with is my understanding in a lot of ways. I don't know. I didn't work with him. Um, but I think that's really tough. And I think that it's tricky because then you're, the question is like, are you getting too micromanagey? Is that what's needed? I don't know. Well, you talked about, you talked about happy teams in your mind, the product talk that I was looking at on YouTube in the 2016 and you, you mentioned Steve jobs there. And that, that is quite a good example actually of the point that you were making is that by and large, the team should be happy, but there are obviously exceptions to, to that to that rule. I mean, a lot of people working under Steve Jobs weren't maybe that happy in their work life, at least not with their relationship with, with him as their boss, but they were happy with the um, what they were putting out into the world and the change that they saw, saw that they were making. So, Look, I, I have a black belt in the martial art. Um, that wasn't always fun. I got hit a lot. 
<laughs> I didn't like the part where I got hit. Um, I like the part where I got to hit people. I'll be perfectly honest, but I didn't. I didn't like the part where I got hit. But I really liked the part where I got the black belt, and um, I felt a tremendous amount of accomplishment, and um, felt really good about myself and what I could do. And yeah, so I'm not saying we should hit people. I just want to be very clear. I am. I am on record. I do not want to be on record as saying we should hit people. I am. I want to be on record as saying that not making something great is not always pleasant. Achieving things is not always easy or super fun, but that doesn't mean that we can't be, you know, a, a happy team and collaborative and excited about what we're building. Let's shift gears. I've, I want to try something new out on, on the show today, which is some rapid fire questions. And you're going to give me some rapid fire answers. Oh, we'll good luck with that. We'll see how this goes. Oh, you want short answers. Uh-huh. Yeah, let's do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's 100% going to happen. Every, the, every answer will just be, it depends. Next. <laughs> it's probably safe. This could be a very short segment to anyone that's <laughs> listening. So, so the, the, the general gist of the questions that I'm going to ask you about is advice for the product team and in particular specific roles within the product team. So I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to give you the first question and we're going to see where it goes. Okay. All right. So the first question is you're a product manager and you've started at a new company. What's the first thing you should do? Talk to absolutely everybody who is on your team and on other teams and a stakeholder and make sure that you understand what you are getting into and why things have been done the way they have been done in the past. And don't just come in and start, you know, changing everything because that's how they did it at your last place. And also talk to users, listen to users. That's two pieces of advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's all good. It's all good advice. Yeah. But just wait, users, sorry, sorry. Users are stakeholders. So you have to talk to them too. That's it. And what would you, what would you say? <laughs> very good. That was very concise. I like that. <laughs> if you were a user researcher and you've just started a new company, what would be the first thing that you should do in that case? Well, I, the first thing I do is I look at the user research that has been done at the, in the past at all. And just, I mean, that's the very first thing. Also the talking to all of your coworkers and understanding what they're trying to understand and what they don't understand and what they need your help with. But just looking at what's been done up to this point and trying to figure out why and what was learned so that you don't, you know, start just repeating the same thing that has been done before is a, is one good thing to do. What's the one thing you wish UX researchers understood about product managers? Good product managers do care about outcomes very much, but may tend to be more focused on business outcomes and don't always understand that good business outcomes should come from good user outcomes. That may be a thing that I want product managers to understand though. <laughs> so in the interest of fairness, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the ability to answer the same question, but the other way around. So what's the one thing you wish product managers understood about UX researchers? Um, I wish product managers understood that UX researchers have a tremendous amount of information about the user that would help them 
make the decisions that they are probably struggling to make and can't seem to come up with the right answer to and that if they just would involve the user researchers in those big decisions, those big decisions might get real easy. That they don't have to sit around in meetings of other product managers and just debate them for hours and hours at a time when they could just go ask a user researcher who would be able to provide tons of data that would help actually inform that discussion and make the decision very easy to make. User researchers make your life easier. Hey, so if a senior stakeholder has fallen in love with a solution to a problem that hasn't been properly validated, what should the product manager do? Cry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, after cry, drink. Um, after crying and drinking, uh, probably something better than that. Um, so I have an exercise that I walk people through that sometimes works. Um, I'm not gonna tell you it always works because nothing always works, but it works on some people. Uh, somebody comes, anybody, but especially executives. Somebody comes to you and says, I really wanna make, we gotta make this thing. It's this feature, we gotta build this feature. It's fantastic, it's gonna be great. Okay, here are the questions that you need to ask. Wow, that sounds like an amazing feature. Um, what exactly are you hoping that that will do for us metrics wise? What metrics do you think that will improve? Um, and they say, oh, well, I don't know. That's a thing right there. You help them figure it out. Okay, well, what might, well, if you don't know what metrics it will improve, why do you want to build it? Um, if they do give you a metric, you can say, oh, fantastic. Okay, so what you really care about then is uh, acquisition. Great. What about these other 15 things that we already have in the backlog that are other acquisition problems? Like, where do you think it falls in priority amongst those things? And how, what can we do, we, as a team, what can we do to help figure out what the best option is for fixing that metric that you seem to care so much about? Because what you need to do is you need to expose the fact that they are falling in love with a feature for no good reason, and you need to make them come up with a reason, and then you need to show them the other things that you could do that would help them reach their goal more easily. Hey, just bringing us down to the close of the show, what is the one thing that you wish you could teach every single person who's invested their time or is currently investing their time and energy into creating products? That ideas are cheap and generally pointless and that what matters is impact. Are you out for playing a game? <laughs> um, okay, this feels very like the um, the end of war games. Is it going to be tic tac toe? I swear I'm not a robot. Well, it's it's going to be. Pre I've never had such a long pause. I did have someone ask me a question the other week as to what the game was about, which I thought was very very wise as well. Well, like, yeah. I can put your mind at ease. It's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing to worry about. It's called what's the first word that comes to mind? Oh God, this is so not going to go well. <laughs> Are you sure? This, you, let me, let me just be clear. Are you sure you want to play this game? It's fine for me. <laughs> hey, it's it's an R eighteen show, so whatever happens, happens. It's okay. Let's do it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say a word. I've got three words. I'm gonna say say them one one after another. Wait for your answer, of course, in between, and and that'll be the end of the game. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. All right. First first word. Time estimates. <laughs> no. 
the second word is validation. Yes. <laughs> and the third word is surveys. Fuck. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. That's pretty... That actually well, worked pretty well. That's what's in my head. Um, yeah, the time estimates. Thank God. Ugh. Time estimates. Gantt charts. If you'd said Gantt charts, I would have just hung up on you. <laughs> I suspected as much, so I, did, I didn't put that one in that the, was final, smart. the final that list. That was smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, so thinking about the next few years, what lies ahead? I know humans are terrible predictors of the future, but mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. What's your? Well, actually, it's really less of a prediction, prediction and more of a more of a hope. What is your greatest hope for the people who are making digital products? Oh, generally not for me, because I mean, for me, it's all the answer is always there be dragons. I literally never have any idea what I'll be doing in six months. Um, what is my greatest hope? I do hope that we get better at predicting things that are going to hurt people. I do hope that, and avoiding them, sorry. Um, I do hope that uh, the people who work at companies get more organized about pushing back on corporate decisions that they don't like. I'm seeing that a lot and I'm actually really excited about it. Um, I do hope that we do something to return to this idea that technology actually can make people's lives better. And because I think it can in a lot of ways, I, I would love to get some of the unbelievable amounts of money out of tech, which sounds kind of bizarre. I, I think the whole economy has gotten really screwed up by, you know, billion dollar B rounds and it, it doesn't make any sense. The economy is just a nightmare and it, it ends up producing a bunch of shit that never makes any money and never makes anybody happy and just ruins a bunch of lives. And I, I would like, I was kind of hoping that, um, you know, with SoftBank maybe having some troubles that that would happen a little less. And, um, I don't know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, but yeah, I'd like to see more of a return to like making stuff that people like enough to pay us for. <laughs> or, you know, things that make money ethically. That'd be cool. I don't know if that's really a return to it. I think that might be a entirely a forward movement thing. But anyway, that's my hope. It's probably completely delusional, but it's my hope probably need probably need some assistance from, from some regulators as well but uh, i mean yeah oh, not, not a... oh, oh hells yeah um yeah 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 i don't think that's just gonna happen i don't think any of that's just gonna naturally happen because because why would it hasn't so far mm. hey look those are some really great things to leave everybody with to think about Laura, it's been really a great conversation with you today, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I wanted to say thank you for all the time and energy you've put into so generous, generously sharing your insights and your passion and your experiences with product people around the world over the years. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was super fun, and uh, yeah, always happy to chat.
Yeah, look, we'd love to do another round sometime. We've got so much more material to cover. Trust me, I hardly made my way through half of it. So many great questions I'd love to ask you. But for the people that are wanting to know more about you, to connect with you, uh, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, I have a website that's usersknow.com, and that's no K-N-O-W, not users, no, um, but usersknow.com, and you can always find me there. I am also at Laura Klein on Twitter, and of course, the podcast with that I co-host with Kate Rutter, as you mentioned, um, is What is Wrong with UX, and you can find it wherever you find fine podcasts. Wonderful. Thanks, Laura. We'll be linking to those in the show notes so everybody will be able to find them really easily. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here. Everything that we've covered today, as I mentioned, will be in the show notes, all the great resources, Laura's books, podcast, everything. It'll all be in there. If you've enjoyed the show you want and you want to hear more of these great conversations with world-class experts like Laura, leave us a comment if you're watching this on youtube or subscribe if you're listening to it via podcast platform um, we'll keep them coming and until next time everybody keep being brave